0: That is a very warm welcome. I am so excited to be here with you on our third week of our neighboring series. I would be happy to be with you on the any week of any series, but I'm especially happy to be here with you on this one. Um, we are just gonna, we're gonna dig right in with a question. By show of hands, how many of you have heard that Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the country? By show of hands, how many you have heard of it? Okay, so basically almost all of us. Um, and I wonder, have you ever wondered how our city got to be this way? How did our segregation come about? Now, some of you might think you already know the answer to that. Racism. And you'd be right. Racist policies, procedures, and people have shaped the contours of our city. But what if, what if racism isn't the only cause of Chicago segregation? What if there's more to the story than that? And that's where we're going to play around. Today, we are going to talk about meaning and identity, and the way that they come together to subconsciously affect the choices we make, the people we associate with, and the places we do not go. Because how can we dismantle the invisible lines of difference that exist in our city if we do not first dismantle the ones that exist in our hearts? Right? Yes, thank you for this Amen. <laughs> Jeannie sent me up nicely. This is gonna be fun, Eleven. So if we are going to dismantle the lines of difference that exist in our city, we have to first start with our own hearts. We can't break down boundaries in the real world if we don't acknowledge that we have boundaries inside of us. So I'm gonna tell you a story. Two years ago, the New York Times Magazine ran an article about solitary confinement. They describe situations where prisoners who spend 23 hours a day alone in a cell the size of a parking space and you have only a few words spoken to them over the course of several days developed what researchers call profound ontological insecurity. They're not sure they're real. They're not sure they're real. We. We're created to live in relationship with one another, and when relationship is stripped away, it endangers our entire sense of self. The article goes on to say that even if the inmates believe they exist, they're not exactly sure who they are. We are each other's meaning makers. Now, I have been part of the church long enough to know that for those of us who believe, Our identities come from Christ, and we should be rooted in that, and that is true. But that still does not conflict with the idea that we are, in fact, each other's meaning makers. Now, just a few minutes ago, you shared with your neighbor the thing that you like most about yourself. That is one of my favorite questions to ask people, what do you like most about yourself, right? So, I'm curious what was said. Erica, my friend, what did you say, what do you like most about yourself? Your hair, because it's fabulous. She said her hair, because she has one of the best heads of hair in the room. So you would would be true. Um, Some of you may have said your hair. You may have said that you're funny. You may have said that you like that you're smart. And so I wonder, how did these ideas of ourselves come about? My guess would be that over the course of time, people told you that you were funny, or they laughed at your jokes, or you got good grades, so you knew that you were smart. Right? Over the course of time, these things began to crystallize for you. For me, uh, it didn't happen slowly. Picture this. Me, in my favorite yoga class, doing my thing, when the instructor was walking around and he whispered to me, those chaturangas are on point, girl. (laughs) What? What? My heart just leapt out of my body. Chaturangas are a move in yoga. They are not hard, but you know, I guess just some of us have a special flair that we add to it that other people can't, you know? So you had better believe that every time I step into a yoga class, every time now, there is barely enough room on my mat for me and my Chaturanga-sized ego. (laughs) That is how it goes. If we laugh at someone's jokes or we compliment their yoga, they get to go through life believing that they're funny or that they're a stone-cold yogi. I don't know. (laughs) Conversely, though, conversely, if we don't see, if we don't honor, if we don't affirm someone, they get to go through life questioning their worth, wondering if they have value wondering if they are real. So today, our text deals directly with what happens when we do not see each other the way God intended us to. It can be found in the book of Matthew. So if you have a Bible, will you turn to Matthew 25, 31? And if you don't, you'll see some people, they're looking under their seats. There's a Bible under your seat for you. You can go ahead and grab that and turn to page 695. 695. Now, if you don't have a Bible in your life at all and you would like one, the Bible that you're holding in your hand, that's your Bible. You go ahead and take that right out of this building with you. It is our gift to you. We would be thrilled for you to do that. That is your Bible. So Matthew 25, verse 31. Now, by way of context, uh, Matthew 25 is at the end of the book of Matthew, and so we're coming towards the end of Jesus's life. And in the past few chapters, he's like kind of doing this fire hose of information. It's as if if he is saying, I know I only have a few days um, left before I'm crucified, and so this is everything I want to impart to you before those events begin. So here we are in Matthew 25, verse 31. For I was hungry and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger and you invited me in. I needed clothes and you clothed me. I was sick and you looked after me. I was in prison and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick or in prison and go to visit you? The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for the, one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. This passage is a how-to guide for do-gooders. Feed the hungry, give drink to the thirsty, so on and so forth. And I love how the righteous respond. They ask, when? Lord, when did we see you hungry? When did we see you a stranger? When did we see you sick? It's as if they've never heard of the phrase, smile and nod. Now, here, a word of advice. Take it, leave it, I'm not your mom. But if it's the end of days... And Jesus himself comes before you and says, my precious child, I want to take you to heaven. And you don't know how you made the cut? (laughs) Don't ask questions. Don't give him time to look down at his clipboard and realize that he made a clerical error. Just go to heaven. Go. Just go with him. Just smile and nod but not the righteous. They ask when. And they're not asking when on some, oh, remind me of that one off of that. Was it that one time in 05? It's not like that. They are regularly engaged in kingdom work. So when they are asking, when did we do these things for you? They're asking, when did we do it for you? We know that we've been taking care of people, but when did we take care of you? And it's so important that we take note of that because it's easy to recognize God in people who we like or who we are close to. Had the righteous spent their days only taking care of their family or people that were similar to them, they wouldn't need to ask the Lord, when did we do for you, Jesus? Because they would already know what he was talking about. They would say, of course we took care of your people, Lord. They were our people too. But the righteous weren't only taking care of the people it was easy or convenient to know. They were crossing the invisible boundaries that separate us and caring for the people who we don't like to see. That is a radical way to love. Which is why it's so interesting then that this passage that depicts such a beautiful way to be a human being is known for such a problematic phrase, the least of these. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Many of us have heard that expression before. We've seen the social media posts. You know, the one from your friend, fresh off a volunteer experience with her small group, and she posts, love serving the least of these with my girls. Hashtag squad, hashtag goals, hashtag squad goals, hashtag making Jesus smile. I have looked up the hashtag making Jesus a smile. It's not as interesting as I thought it would be, but maybe it'll catch on now and it'll be interesting. But, you know, you might look at a post like that and you would think, okay, the only thing that that's, a, that's guilty of is a presumptuous use of hashtags. But you would be wrong because our widespread embrace of the phrase, the least of these, can do more harm than help. It puts distance between people, creating this false dichotomy of us and them, and leads us to believe that because their struggles are so visible, their poverty, their mental illness, their country of origin, that their need for grace is bigger than ours, that they are more broken than we are, that their need for healing is greater than our own, when in fact, in church, please hear me loud and clear, we are all equally broken. We suffer a brokenness in our relationship with God, our relationship with ourselves, each other, creation, and are undeserving of the grace, our Savior so lavishly, bestows on us amen to that he gives it freely not one of us in this room not a single one of us is worthy of it and yet it is given to us no strings attached no hoops to jump through there is no us and them just people who are equally broken, crying out to a savior to save us all. Another reason the least of these is, program- is problematic is that it flattens individuals to, to single definitions. Needy, stranger, prisoner. Preventing us from acknowledging the full range of humanity that a person can that exists in a person, that a person could be homeless and also incredibly bright, a refugee, and laugh out loud, funny, in prison, and yet incredibly kind. It flattens people. Another thing it does is that it fools us into believing that the least of these cannot be among the rest of us. I would bet money that there are people in this room who are sick, who are struggling to make ends meet, and they are doing everything in their power to hide it, lest they be considered among the least. The least of these separates us. It is problematic. And this idea of a singular definition of not being seen for our full range of humanity is actually something that we can all relate to. Now, you're going to have to indulge me because I am a social worker by training. I am a social worker in my heart. And so I am going to talk to you about social worky things, specifically sociology. So in a book called Whistling Vivaldi by Claude Steele, he calls what I'm describing stereotype threat. It's based on the fact that we have all a pretty good understanding of what the rest of society thinks about all the different identities that we occupy, which means that whenever we're in a situation where a bad stereotype about whatever identities could be applied, we know it, right? We know it. And so to illustrate the point, let's all do a thought exercise. I want you to think of one of your strongest identities, okay? It could be your race, your age, your sexual orientation, your health status, gender, whatever it is, whatever means something to you. Think of your strongest identity. And then I want you to answer the following question to yourself. When was the first time or a time that you were aware that you were blank? Fill in the blank with whatever it is. When was the first time that, or a time you were very aware that you were blank? Maybe it was the first time you were aware that you were an adult. I am still waiting for that day. (laughs) Maybe it was the first time that you had some sort of physical limitation that not everybody else seemed to have. When was the first time you were aware that you were blank? For me, the first thing that comes to mind is my name, Abella. Now, my parents, who were born and raised in Nigeria, immigrated to the States in the 70s. That's us. <laughs> they had four children and gave all of us proud Igbo names, except I wasn't so proud. The times that I was aware that I wasn't American like everybody else was American was on the first day of school every year, or on the first day a substitute came and the, and the attendance was called didn't matter who the teacher was there would always be without fail a sucking in of breath <sighs> <Ooh. laughs> and then a woo, okay this is a oh, so doozy okay. <laughs> okay and then the attempt <laughs> and you see the name Abella might lead to some mildly annoying pronunciations, but Abella isn't actually my full name. It's not what shows up on the uh, roll call. <laughs> that would be this. <laughs> Abella Chuku. It's a beautiful Igbo name. Chuku means God, Abella means mercy. Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful, got it, yeah. Where were you when that when I was eight? I don't know. (laughs) But there is nothing merciful about those formative days when I would sit in the classroom, sweating bullets, waiting for a teacher to massacre my name. So self-conscious that maybe the kids would start to laugh, or maybe they wouldn't want to be friends with me, this brown girl with the weird name. It went so far uh, that one year, for exactly one day, I started writing the name Vivian on the tops (laughs) of my assignments, just out of the blue, just started writing Vivian on the tops of my (laughs) assignments. Because it was the name that my mom would give whenever I would pester her with the question, yeah, but what would my American name have been? And she would say Vivian, so Vivian was born. And then uh, that same day, I got all my papers back with a stern note from my teacher. Miss Kowalski was not having that. And so Vivian died. She lasted one day, and then she never came back. (laughs) She never came back. But that is what stereotype threat is all about, that's the power of it. When we are in situations where the stereotype is relevant and we understand that we could be judged in terms of it, we get nervous. We try to avoid or disprove the stereotype or just not deal or be in those situations at all. In Whistling Vivaldi's um, Steele describes study after study where stereotype threat affects the way that people behave. My favorite is a study where he takes white Princeton students to a golf course, and he tells half of them that the golf measures their natural athletic ability. And the students that heard that performed worse at golf than the students who didn't get that instruction. And that's crazy to me because we're all thinking it, white, Princeton, golf, it's their birthright. How could they mess this up? How could they mess this up? But that is the power of stereotype threat. It happens for women when they feel triggered about their their womanhood and they go in to take a math test. It might happen to some of you of a certain age or who are above a certain age every time you walk into the lobby at Soul City. You look around and you're like, these people are all children. How is this happening? What are they going to think of me? Right? Stereotype threat is real and we've all experienced it. It affects whether we will cross the invisible lines of difference that exist in our hearts. And Steele and his researchers came up with just the experiment to illustrate that point. It involves chairs. So Steele invited white male students into a room and told them that they were gonna be having a discussion with two conversation partners. They laid photos down of their discussion partners on the table, and that's when the uh, white male students realized that their discussion partners were two black men. Half the group was told that they would be discussing relationships and dating. The other half was told that they would be discussing racial profiling. After they were told that, the researchers stood up and said, OK, I'm going to go get your discussion partners now. But before I go, will you please arrange the chairs for our discussion so that when we come back, we can get to it? And that was the experiment. How would these white male students arrange the chairs? So I want you to put on your little researcher hat for me and take a guess. When the students thought that they would be discussing dating, pantomime for me, how do you think they arranged the chairs when they thought they were going to be discussing dating? Give me a show with your hands. Close, close. Well, you guys are very good sociology researchers, because that is what happened. When the students thought they were going to be discussing dating, they arranged the chairs very close to each other. Now. How do you think they arranged the chairs when they thought they'd be discussing racial profiling? Other side, the <laughs> Other side of the gym, yes. Well, what they did was they put the two partners' chairs close together. And then you're exactly right, sir. They moved their chair as far away as uh, not noticeably you know, possible. right? So they moved their chair far away. When talking about dating and relationships, chairs over here. When talking about racial profiling, the chair is over here. Just the thought, just the idea that they might be construed, misconstrued as a racist was enough to move their chair over. And so Steele was really curious. What would it take to get the students to place their chairs close, across both situations? And so they ran the same experiment but added one tweak. Before the researcher left the room, he said, hey, I know, talking about racial profiling, it's weird. I mean, it gets people sensitive and riled up. But I want you to just think about this as a learning experience. Just think about this as an opportunity to learn from two people who don't look like you, who might be different from you, have different opinions, and that you just get to learn from them. So class. What do you think the researcher or the students did when they heard that piece of advice? What do you think they did with the chair? Do you think they moved it closer? Well, they did. In fact, when the students were presented this opportunity as a learning experience, they moved their chairs just as close to each other as those students who thought that they would be talking about dating all of a sudden, mistakes are just mistakes and not indicative of some inherent racism. The stereotype threat has been neutralized. And so, why are we talking about research and sociology on a Sunday morning in church? Well, I'll tell you why. It matters because when it comes to our ability to dismantle the invisible lines of difference that exist in our hearts, phrases like the least of these are exactly like the situation the students faced in that room. It triggers the wrong identity of us. We become worried about not knowing what to say or saying the wrong thing, thus confirming the stereotype that we don't know how to talk to them We worry that we'll feel uncomfortable or guilty, that we are seemingly so blessed with so much, and they so little. Because these unconscious thoughts are so stressful, they cause us to place our proverbial chairs as far away as possible from the least of these. This shortcut phrase, the least of these, causes us to take the longest route away from the people Jesus called us to be in community with. The phrase, the least of these, when you use it, you come to see people and you take a step away rather than moving your chair closer like Steele and his researchers, we have to change the narrative if we want to change the behaviors. And the new narrative, actually no, the always intended narrative is right there in our text. Let's take a look. The king will reply, truly I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, You did for me brothers and sisters of mine That's the phrase that should have stuck these 2,000 years later brothers and sisters of mine The least of these calls to mind are differences, but those brothers and sisters of mine that speaks to our shared humanity. Can you imagine the shift in our collective hearts if our intention was not to serve the least of these, but to serve our brothers and sisters in Christ? Can you imagine? Anyone who has siblings will tell you that they can drive you crazy. They can break your heart. And sometimes, you feel just a little bit guilty that fate smiled on you and gave you all the good genes. (laughs) But in most cases, at the end of the day, we love our siblings profoundly and instinctively. What would it look like if we loved all our brothers and sisters in Christ in that same way? What if we saw their loneliness, their pain, their indignities as our own? Because like family, we are brothers and sisters and we are responsible for each other, church. We are responsible for each other. Can you imagine what our neighborhoods would look like if we saw each other as brother and sister. Can you imagine what our schools would look like, what our prison systems would look like, what our immigration policy would be, what our healthcare policy would be if we saw each other as brothers and sisters, that we were responsible for each other. If we made that shift, we would not allow 24 million people to wither on the vine uninsured. We would not see immigrants as the latest cash cow in our prison industrial system. And this is one that you might not be expecting to hear, but we would have treated the crack epidemic in the same way that we are talking about and looking at the opioid epidemic if we really saw people as our brothers and sisters. Can you imagine the movement that we all would create if we lived our lives in this way? We, when we shorthand the message God has for us, we shortchange the blessing that he wants to bestow on us. When we shortchange the message, we sh- when we shorthand the message, we shortchange the blessing. It is simple as that. God never intended us to abbreviate ourselves out of relationship, out of community. We are responsible for our brothers and sisters, and there is transformation that happens right here, when we move our chairs in closer to each other. This is the seat of transformation. This is the spot of transformation. And I promise you, some of your most impactful conversations, some of your most important life-changing moments will happen when you slide your seat next to someone of a different faith than you, of a different socioeconomic status than you, of some different category that puts them in the margins and you not. Your life will change when you slide your chair over there. This is the seat of transformation. And yet we spend so much time placing our seat as far away as possible, and we miss all of it. We miss all of what God has intended for us when we don't engage. Romans twelve five says, so in Christ we though many form one body and each member belongs to all the others. What if when we all walk out of this place, we stop bringing, breathing life into the barriers and the excuses that we set up for ourselves not to engage and begin to construct our lives in a way that has us moving our seats closer into each other. What if we did that, purposefully dismantling the lines of difference in our hearts and in our cities and being humbled by the image of God that exists in every single person on the planet? I don't care what religion you are. I don't care what race you are. I don't care who you love. It exists in all of us. The king will reply, truly, I tell you, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. And then all of us will say, of course we did, Lord. They were our people too. And that, that certainly would make Jesus smile. So now that you are feeling all warm and tender, (laughs) trusting me with your lives, will you please pull out your phone for just a second? Just pull it out. Don't check email or get distracted. Just pull out your phone. And as a church, we are going to move our chairs closer to each other you may have heard over the past couple weeks that next week we are having what we call Love Works Weekend, where we're going to be all over the city partnering in organizations that are doing incredible, incredible work. And you might be thinking to yourself, okay, well, it sounds like Soul City taking a week off church, and if I feel like volunteering, I will. Otherwise, you know, I'll just like sleep in or do whatever it is that I'm going to do. And if you were thinking that, Let me just disabuse you of that fact. That is not what is happening. We are having church next week. You're volunteering is your church next week. So if you were gonna be here in town and you normally would come to this building, now you get to choose any number of incredible buildings to worship at next week. It is an act of worship to serve and you get to do that. We all get to do that. And so this is gonna, you know, it's new for us. So I want to walk you through how to sign up, just in case you're confused or you're nervous. So on your phones, please go to loveworkschicago.org slash neighboring. loveworkschicago.org slash neighboring. And we're going to throw it up here on the screen, too, so you can follow along. So uh, first, okay, yeah, that never gets horrifying. (laughs) Stops getting horrifying. We can scroll down or up from that. Scroll away from that. Okay, great. And you're going to hit select your serve. Select your serve. And that's going to take you to the page where all the different volunteer opportunities are. And you'll just scroll through that and we have a ton of different um, places that you can go. Now, families, I wanna talk to you. Almost all of these serves are great for kids, but we flagged a couple that we think would be especially fun for families. So just look out for that and see um, what interests you. And then if you're not part of a family, just go ahead and choose any one of those opportunities on that site. You can go wherever feels fun for you. And I think that that's the thing. You know, sometimes we think that serving has to feel like painful, like work and awful. And the only way that you get like a point in heaven is if you hated it the whole time. And that's not what volunteering has to be. You can choose something that delights you, right? Okay, so good. Now, if you are thinking that you are not going to sign up because maybe this is your first day here, or you just started going here, or maybe you're not allowed to sign up. You are allowed, we would love to have you. So sign up and if you're nervous that maybe you won't know anyone, bring a friend. They don't need to go to Soul City, just bring a friend, come or come by yourself and you'll meet incredible, incredible people next week, right? But we all know that it can be easy to go to church, right? It can be relatively easy to go to church depending on the weather and, you know, sports seasons. But it is much harder to be the church it can be easy to go to church but it is harder to be the church and next week collectively we get to be the church in this beautiful broken city of ours so while I'm talking I hope you are scrolling through choosing um, a location that feels fun to you because I cannot wait to see where you choose to be next week. I can't wait to see you move your chair as close as possible to the people and communities all around Chicago. It is going to be so fun as we follow Jesus's great commandment to love our neighbors the way we love ourselves. And I am so looking forward to it. Will you stand with me and pray? God, would you make us meaning makers this week? Will you help us see, honor, and affirm our brothers and sisters? Would you help us see their struggles as our struggles and vice versa? God, it is our honor and our delight to do your your work in this world, Lord, and I just pray that you bless every one of us, that you help us make beautiful, wonderful meaning out of everyone that we meet. Let us see them with your eyes. Let us love them with your hearts. It is your name that we pray. Amen.